Hello, I'm Brian First, and you are listening to a new episode of Rural Roots, a show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. We're going to have a little bit of a different episode today, because in my office, with me, I have Ryan Gibson. Hey, Ryan. Hi, Brian. So last time I had you on the show, we talked in your office at St. Mary's University in Halifax. That's right. We were chatting about community foundations and philanthropy and the role that they could play in the future of small towns. Today, you are a very different Ryan. I am indeed. So where are you? I'm now at the University of Guelph in the School of Environmental Design and Rural Development, and I've taken a position as the Liberal Professor of Regional Economic Development. Okay, and what do you do now? So my new role is to work with rural communities and urban communities in southwestern Ontario, but also to work with communities across the country uh, around regional economic development and local development. And so I've got some research projects that are taking place in Labrador, looking at online shopping, research in Nova Scotia and in Ireland around rural vitality, as well as being engaged with the Rural Policy Learning Commons. Rural Policy Learning Commons is the international partnership that is one of the partners on this show. You are also still involved with uh, uh, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, which is the other partner. That's right. I served as the past president for that organization and still involved in quite a few initiatives. Okay. Today, we are going to talk about something a little bit different. That's right. This is my recent adventures in Alaska. What were you doing in Alaska? Well, it's a bit out of the way for myself, but in Alaska, I was attending the 2016 International Comparative Rural Policy Studies Summer Institute program. And this is a program um, that we often refer to as ISERPs. I'm glad you're referring to it as ISERPs because I really don't think we can keep repeating the whole name over and over again. But what is it? ISERPs is an international consortium of faculty and graduate students from across North America and across Western Europe. And every year this consortium gets together and offers a two-week summer um, institute program, an opportunity for students to dive into topics uh, as well as look at some, some ways, some methods for doing comparative work between two different places in the world. Okay, so what were you looking at in Alaska? We had two weeks that were jam-packed full of topics that related to innovation, economic development, to climate change, food security, um, issues that are taking place in Alaska, but these are also issues that communities across the world are are addressing. Um, So it provided students a really unique opportunity to see how these sorts of topics um, emerged in the Alaskan context. You want to tell us for for this episode about a very specific project, so what is it? That's right. Um, We had two two full weeks up in Alaska, but today I wanted to talk about the Cold Climate Housing Research Centre. I had the opportunity, we all actually had the opportunity to tour their facility, um, but I sat down with three of their um, staff members um, and chatted with them about some of the work that they do, um, how they're sharing the information and the success stories that they have uh, and some of the interesting um, outcomes they've achieved. So we are going to hear from three people. Three people. You'll hear from Robin, Vanessa and Bruno. All three are staff with the centre. Okay, so first we hear from Robin. My name is Robin Garberslatt. I am a mechanical engineer and for the most part I do research into building envelopes, walls, and heat pumps for cold climates. 
I have been in Alaska almost 20 years. I am originally from the East Coast of the United. Yeah. Okay, and now we have... This is Vanessa. My name is Vanessa Stevens. I'm also in the Building Science Research Department, but I'm one of the non-engineers. I'm a scientist. And like Robin said, we research anything and everything about buildings, heating systems, building envelopes, foundations, ventilation, you name it. I'm from Texas. Also came up here for a year or two to go to grad school. Married an Alaskan. Now I'm stuck. And the last one is Bruno. I'm Bruno Gruno. Um, I am a mechanical engineer, and uh, I'm in the building science research program. So we could do good, uh, you know, nerdy analysis work. Um, we try to do some work with trying to get extra partners and things of that nature. Let's see. Came from Virginia. We came up to Alaska to try it for a year or two, and then go back, but we never left. And um, uh, what else would I miss? How long have you been in Alaska? Yeah, I've been in Alaska. This is, uh, this is our ninth year in Alaska. And and the plan was to go for a year or two, and we, we're never leaving. we got kids now. we got an energy-efficient house, et cetera, et cetera. We're here. So I should also mention, Boynton, that this was my first time ever recording sound for a radio program. Uh, and I, I did the best I could, but at times you'll start to hear maybe some lesser quality sounds, um, but I think at the end of the day you'll really be able to hear the story that's quite interesting. Okay, tell me about the center. Well, why don't I let Bruno tell you what it's all about? It's about durable, affordable, sustainable shelter in the north and all that surrounds it. Okay, let's, let's, let's step back, right? The bulk of the housing that happened in Fairbanks and, and Anchorage happened during the pipeline years. And a lot of the folks who came up here, you know, came from Kansas. So they knew how to build in Kansas, so they came up here building like they live in Kansas. And, um, and you can imagine how quickly people realized that was a problem and how costly it was, how, you know, this was causing rot or something like that. And so um, that pretty much began the discussion of uh, what's the best way to build. And as, as, you know, the university gets involved or university types get involved, there was an ongoing conversation for a number of years saying, well, we need to start a, you know, a center where we can discuss this, a think tank where we can try to figure out what's the best way. Well, Jack A. Bear, who's our, who's our founder and, and CEO, he's a, he's a home builder. And, um, and he was also doing the same thing. He was trying to think what's the best way. As he was building his houses, he was trying to come up with um, the most efficient, energy efficient and affordable housing options that are out there. And, um, and he too was caught up in some of the talk, but he was frustrated by the talk and he decided, I'm just gonna do it. So he did it, you know? And, and we were established in 1999 and, um, and it was in 2006, you see the research testing facility in which we stand, in, in which we sit. And um, we've been there ever since. So here we are in our, this is uh, 17 years now. We're hoping to be here for much longer. That sounds really interesting. It reminds me a little bit of the way that the Harris Center operates. They're in Fairbanks, but they're not part of the university. No, they're not part of the university at all. They're actually a non-profit corporation. Okay, but they have statewide mandate. I almost said province-wide mandate. That's right, and it's something that I asked the staff at the center um, to describe. Okay, so who's going to tell us about it? It's going to be Bruno. It's funny because it was for a long time it was considered, you know, oh that Fairbanks group, 
you know, and, and despite however involved we were in Cake, Alaska, or you know, somewhere out in Southwest Alaska, or even Barrow, um, it was hard to get get past, you know, there's that Fairbanks group. But people are recognizing us now, and, and uh, we're definitely getting um, more recognition throughout the state. What kind of things do they do? The Cold Climate Housing Research Center does a variety of different things, but most of it is applied research uh, around sustainability and housing for unique climates like Alaska. So what are the characteristics of that, that climate? It's an incredibly cold climate, much colder than we're seeing in the, the main part of the United States or in most parts of Canada, uh, and a dry climate. Um, and one of the projects that they're particularly proud of is an initiative called Breathe. Um, and it's a really innovative way that they've looked at um, doing air ventilation in houses in the far north. Um, and here's how Bruno described it. Breathe is uh, an integrated heating and ventilation system. Okay. So, you know, we're, we're really big advocates of building a tight, warm house. But if you have a tight, warm house, you got to have a way to get fresh air in and stale air out. Now, typically in low, warmer climates, you'd open a window, right? But here, you don't do that. Um, what you can use is called an HRV, a heat recovery ventilator, and it exchanges the heat from the stale, out, warm, outgoing air with the cold, fresh, incoming air. So it tempers that cold, fresh, incoming air, warms it up a little bit, delivers fresh air to your house, and robs the heat from the stale, outgoing air. So you got fresh air that's tempered. There are two things with that. When we go to some of the rural, our early rural projects, we said, hey, for ventilation, we're going to put an HRV. People sort of resisted that. There's a stigma attached with it. And that is, um, the stigma was back in the early versions of the HRVs, they had all sorts of problems. They were costly to run, they froze up, they blew cold air on you. And so even though they're a lot more efficient now, people, you know, there's still a stigma that people think, oh, I don't want one of these in my house. So um, we said, well, let's let's fix that because we need fresh air. HRVs are the best way to do it and most uh, economical in, in terms of energy use. Um, but people don't, no matter how efficient it is, if it's 40 below out, you're still going to get cold air blowing on you. And we can't have people closing the dampers because then it causes others issues in the house. So what we decided is we, we decided to come up with a way to add heat to the incoming airstream. So we call it breathe. It's combining heat and breath. So it's B-R capital H-E-A-T, little H-E, so breathe. Um, it, basically we're warming the air after, we, after the HRV. We, we run that heat through heat exchangers so that even when there's no call for heat, it tempers the air so it never feels cold. And then when there is a call for heat, it uses that same ducting system for your ventilation as a heat delivery source. We deliver, we created it a few years ago. We've used several, we've actually developed several steps since the initial iteration. And, um, and it's worked out quite well. And that's been fun. It's been fun monitoring. It's been fun installing. Breathe is now a statewide initiative, right? Yes, they're uh, now expanding uh, across Alaska, even into the, some of the more remote communities. Uh, what's really interesting is that they're now incorporating this technology into the construction of brand new houses that are designed specifically for the Alaskan environment. Because, you know, as Bruno said early on in the interview, we're not in Kansas anymore. So Breathe isn't the only project that the center's working on. Um, they have another housing project in Quinhawk um, that's really quite interesting. Uh, in Quinhawk, they are building octagonal houses. Um, 
and I, maybe it's easier to let Vanessa tell you about what's happening. Okay, what's here? The house was fascinating because it made it octagonal, and the community, the uh, we sent three people down, and then the community had I think five people on their crew to learn how to build a house. And you know they taught everybody how to build a house, and then the community itself built five houses after the fact. My job actually was to monitor the indoor air quality and the heating system and how much fuel the house used, how efficient it was. And it was really interesting because I don't get to go out to the villages very often. So I had to go to Quinnahawk. I think I went to Quinnahawk twice. And uh, I think this was actually before we started the Breathe system. So the house had an HRV. And the housing stock in Quinnahawk is a little problematic. They have some serious mold problems, moisture problems in their houses. So these, this family, I think there were, I think five of them, at some point there's six, uh, lived in the house. And they had an HRV, which failed. It, uh, a spring, of all things, in the HRV broke. And they had absolutely no idea that the air they were breathing was as bad as it was, because that is what they were used to. And it was really a really kind of big lesson for us that as much as we try to make this as healthy as possible, as efficient as possible, there's this huge education piece that we're missing. And I think the breathe system has probably helped more than our education attempts. But uh, that was that was a real eye-opener when, uh, and actually the reason we discovered that the HRV was not working was our, our boss, Jack, went down and visited the house and walked into the house and said, what is going on here? This isn't right. In Quinnahawk, I worked pretty closely with the lady who lived in the house. Okay. She she knew, uh, she was the one who knew my system more than anybody. In uh, Anaktuvik, we also monitored the Anaktuvik house, and we worked actually with the high school. There was a high school class that worked with us on the monitoring of the Anaktuvik house. Great. Yeah, that, was a, that was a different project. That is genius. To use high school students to monitor air quality, that's brilliant. I think you mentioned when we talked earlier, before we recorded the episode, that they also work on projects around water supply. That's something we struggle with here in the Canadian North, um, certainly in some of the remote communities in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, can you tell me a bit about that project? Absolutely. Um, and this was another initiative that they were really keen and excited to talk about. Um, Getting water into some of these communities in Alaska, as you can imagine, is incredibly difficult um, and can be incredibly expensive. And so the center has been working with a series of partners to develop some new um, experiments and some trials around how to do this. Oh, yeah, that was a good Finally, one. Finally, <laughs> we haven't We haven't talked about that enough today. <laughs> yeah, so there's a um, the Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation, ADEC, is tasked with, um, well, environmental quality, basically they're tasked with uh, water, providing water and sewer to the last 3,600 homes in the state that are on the honey bucket system. Honey bucket system means you defecate and urinate in buckets and take it outside to some pond or some other place to dispose of it. And the cost, the projected cost to water and sewer these houses are uh, 1.4 billion dollars. So 
they said, well, let's think outside of the box on this because, you know, when you think water and sewer, you're thinking of, like, what your average house in the lower 48 might have, right, or house in Toronto might have. So they came up with, ADEC came up with, it's called the Water and Sewer Challenge. Water and Sewer Challenge was a competition where people from across the country, across the world, whoever, wanted to pitch their idea of ways to take a house that was dry, which means no running water or sewer, and make it wet. And, um, and so they did this. It's a multi-year competition. The f at the first year, there are all these um, ideas submitted, and the top three winners were, sub were given money to develop prototypes and test them for the next, the next year or so. Well, um, one of the three uh, winning teams was a group with CDM Smith and Dowell. Uh, those are the two primary folks. Um, and Dow approached us and hired us to do the building and testing of their design. So here in Fairbanks, we um, we built their design, and it's basically in their case, it's a shed that's about eight feet wide by five or six feet deep that attaches onto the side of the house. It has two tanks. One is a raw water tank that you fill up with with river water, with water off the roof, or whatever. And then the rest of the system um, recycles that water and sends it to your shower, to your laundry, to your hands, to, your, uh, to the bathroom sink, to the kitchen sink, and to the toilets. Which, of course, the house didn't have any to begin with, but now you've got that. And, and if, if the water goes through the shower, washing machine, or bathroom sink, uh, it gets recycled and used over and over again. If it goes through the kitchen sink or through the toilet, it doesn't get used again. It goes right to the black water tank. So eventually, all the water that comes in in the raw water tank eventually becomes kind of gray water. It all moves over to the black water tank. When that's full, you, you pump it out, and now you've turned a wet house, a dry house into a wet house. So we get to nerd out a little bit. We get to do, we um, work with them and built a system that uh, simulates water use. And so we have these for a year, nine months we're testing this, and um, simulating the water use every day, you know, as if someone's, you know, waking up in the morning, you know, using a shower, running laundry, you know, and then it's quiet for a while and people come home at lunch or these different scenarios for dinner, weekend scenarios, or they have different scenarios like, hey, there's a basketball game in town and now you've got 40 people using your house. I'm exaggerating, but um, you want to test it against all these scenarios. And um, and that's been pretty exciting. We've learned quite a bit on it and uh, and it's it's faring well in the, in the competition so far. Ryan? you know I need to ask, right? What is a honey bucket? Well, it's not what it sounds like. Um, in a sense, it's a system of dis a system for disposing of waste and used water in Alaskan houses when you don't have indoor plumbing. We went on a tour of the facility and Robin gave us a bit of a bit more of an explanation around what that is and perhaps we could play that clip. Okay. In rural Alaska, most villages do not have running water. Um, so this, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One, a lot of villages here, you either have to take a boat to or fly in. So it's hard to get you know, a lot of equipment out there. Um, and then another reason is just the soil. So in permafrost, you can't really have a sewer, traditional sewer system because you'll melt the soil. And then a lot of rural Alaska is also in swamps. So especially in southeast or southwest Alaska, it's very swampy. So it's not ground that you want to be sinking pipes into. Um, so as a result of this, very few villages in Alaska have 
running water. Um, and what people will do in these villages is um, sometimes you can use outhouses if the soil will allow it. But again, um, in swamp situations, you know, you can't really dig an outhouse in the soil because it'll just sink there. Um, so in a lot of those areas, people rely on honey buckets, which is exactly what it sounds like. You go to the bathroom or put wastewater um, from washing dishes or whatever into a honey bucket. And for most villages, you can take those to a central dumping location. Some of the bigger villages have a dumping location in different areas, and then they'll have a truck that comes and fills up you know, a, a larger truck with the wastewater and takes it out to a lagoon. In other villages, um, people don't have dumping locations to put their wastewater. And so either they're looking at dumping it just out in their yard, um, or they'll try and walk it some distance away, but um, that's a problem because when you dump it somewhere that's not a lagoon and then it rains and then there's the potential for flooding, you know, all of a sudden you have wastewater all over your village. Um, so it's a really big problem that people are trying to address in different ways. So is this the first time you've come across honey buckets on rural routes? Yes, this is the first time I dealt with honey buckets on rural routes. I honestly, I didn't know the term before and I can kind of see how it would be an issue. So how common is for some of these communities to not have indoor plumbing? Yeah, so I'm hoping listeners don't anticipate that every community in Alaska has this for every household. Um, During our time at the center, Bruno indicated that most communities would have indoor plumbing. There were about 3,600, he mentions, um, households that still don't have indoor plumbing that this initiative is trying to address. Um, But within any one community, you may have some communities that do have indoor plumbing and some houses that do not have indoor plumbing. And usually what the determining factor was is location. Are you close to the source of water where you can bring it into your house or are you too far from that distance? In which case you might use a system like the honey bucket. And I would imagine that um, bringing more traditional plumbing services would be either prohibitively expensive or maybe even impossible given the nature of the environment that they live in. Um, So I'm assuming this is a significant saving um, coming up with these kinds of alternative systems. Significant savings um, that can be in place, but the other is also around environmental management and having waste disposed of in a proper manner um, so that it's not um, impacting other parts of the community, whether it's other sources of water or whether it's around wildlife, whether it's around recreation parks and services. Uh, And so it goes in a number of different directions. And you can imagine most people would probably prefer to have an indoor plumbing system as opposed to having to deal with a honey bucket on a daily basis. Okay, let's play another clip from Bruno that he kind of explains some of the impacts of these new technologies. That's right. Bottom line is these systems have to be able to be built, flown out, and installed for like a hundred, it's like a hundred forty or hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is of course tremendous and it's probably is worth more than some of the houses that are out there. But if you compare that, it's like a third of that $1.4 billion, you know, or maybe a half. I can't do the number in my head, but it's definitely a saving for, savings for ADAC. So that amount is per house? Yeah. And it's part of a, a cooperative system. So the idea is you bring these out here, and then you're going to have a cooperative maintenance group. So you have a group of folks who, who will go and service each one of these things. Because one of the things we learn in rural Alaska is you can bring a new technology, but if it can't be sustained and maintained, it becomes lawn art. You know, and, and no one uses it. It becomes lawn art. Yeah. 
I find it really interesting that they're thinking about this in very practical, but also in a very holistic way. Um, it's not just about installing this technology in homes, but it's also about building the community. So they have cooperatives that can service some of these projects. That's actually a really interesting way to make up for the capacity that's not necessarily there. Yeah, the center fundamentally has an approach of of building capacity and building new knowledge sets. Um, and they're really big on making sure that these are not one-off projects at the end of the day. You said that the Cold Climate Housing Research Center is a non-profit. Does that mean that they sell the designs or the technology? Um, or can people just access those? Their website is an amazing resource if you put it into Google. Um, most of their information is readily available both from an academic as well as a, a very much a, a construction perspective. Um, so it really has to do with their whole approach to how they, how they do what they do. Um, in conversation with Bruno, he summed it up when he told me about the architect colleague that works at the research center and how he saw the work that they do. We have, a, we have an architect here, his name is Aaron Cook, and right now he's out in McTarvick. But uh, he, he likes to say, he says, uh, as an architect, he likes working here because on the projects, he says when they're successful, we call it great architecture. When they're not, we call it great research. <laughs> yes. And, and it's, a good, uh, it's a good reminder. It's, it's, it's all uh, an opportunity to learn something here. And, yeah. And we want it, of course, to work, but we learn on what doesn't work, and that's often as equally as valuable. Yeah. One thing that I'm really interested in is how do they connect to the rural communities in Alaska? Part of my job is to do that in Newfoundland Labrador, and we have sort of similarly large geography and sparsely populated um, areas and remote areas. So what do they do? How do they do that? I know it can be really difficult for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah, so the Cold Climate Housing Research Center is actually based in Fairbanks, and many of the rural communities are, are hundreds or thousands of kilometers away. And the center has a variety of different strategy, strategies that they're using. Um, and some of them are really quite simple at the end of the day. They're not involving high-tech technologies. Uh, Robin said during our discussion that, among other things, they simply pick up the phone and rural communities phone them around questions and opportunities. Um, but this is how she described their relationships. Oftentimes, a rural community comes to us because they know we exist. And, and those, those projects in rural communities start with community meetings, where we, our architects go out and they say, well, what do you want to do? What do you need? What has worked in the past? And then they introduce, well, this is what we've done, and how can we blend these ideas together? In terms of, you know, a lot of the stuff we do in urban Alaska, I mean, the center's in Fairbanks, and people walk through our door every day. Um, Fairbanks is, Fairbanks knows we're here. Um, more and more, the rest of the state is realizing we're a resource and, and we're available. But, you know, any, any, any person who's building a house, especially in Fairbanks, will stop by here at some point and say, well, I want to do this, and how do I do it? Or they'll call and they'll end up talking to, we have a, a builder on staff and pretty much all day long. They, people call him and he's, they, he explains, how do you do it? He's very knowledgeable. But we certainly have, we have a big web presence and um, our videos are pretty popular. We freely available videos on how to do just about everything in construction and mechanical systems. And being a nonprofit, 
um, everything we produce is online. So all the designs for the prototype, prototype houses are online. Um, all of our research is online. Um, any data that we've collected, most of it is online. And, and one thing that you'll notice around, we have a lot of um, reports, and they're good technical, uh, you know, academically approved reports. Mm -hmm. They might be 80 pages or 90 pages, and now I'm holding one in my hand that's 104 pages long, and it's really good information. But um, your average homeowner isn't going to read that. And so what we get good at doing is creating snapshots, two to four page um, snapshots of these reports. And that travels very far, very quickly. And, and, and then, of course, people say, oh, okay, well, I guess I need to get that report and look up the specific information. But that's, that's been a good vehicle for um, specific topics to, to people. Lots of tours. And also, we teach classes, especially to contractors for okay. continuing education so that they do get the latest research. Mm -hmm. And we pick up the phone. The phone rings all the time. <laughs> they seem to use some of the tools and techniques that we use here at the Harris Center. It seems that the simple solutions tend to work best. Um, I was wondering, do you know if they work with communities in the Canadian North? Uh, do they kind of share some of these learnings with our folks here? Well, that was a question I was keenly interested in, um, having some experiences in the Canadian North, and I was surprised that they have really robust connections to the Canadian North. Um, they're working in partnerships, they're sharing information. Ironically, Vanessa says that sometimes they end up connecting Canadians to other Canadians. <laughs> okay, let's hear that. We actually, we have a pretty good dialogue going on with folks in Whitehorse, in the mm -hmm. Yukon. And a lot of the research that we've done into HRVs and ventilation systems, we get, they, they are having some terrible troubles with their ventilation systems. And there's a lot of, there's certainly a lot of dialogue going back and forth. And it was fascinating. I've been working on uh, these energy recovery ventilators because we have very, very dry air. And they, they can help with the humidity a little bit, not very much, in Fairbanks. And I stumbled on these studies from the University in Saskatchewan. And then I got a call from a fellow in Whitehorse, and I said, have you looked at this study from Saskatchewan? Because that's in Canada. <laughs> but actually, it was fun to connect him with those fellows down there, because they're all doing the same thing. We're, uh, and we're certainly very closely tied to Canada. Yeah, we've got, we've got some connections with uh, uh, Natural Resource Canada. Um, what's the other one? That... Uh, Energy Solutions Center. Yeah. Kathy Cottrell. Yeah, we've got some connections with various organizations, housing and yeah. research in in uh, Canada. You know, we would. I mean, quite frankly, we would love to partner up with them. It it can be hard traveling just right across the border. Just for one, you can't fly directly there. You know, and then you have to think about exchange rate and all that kind of stuff. And we just want to make it work. You know, we don't want to have to deal with that. But and we're making it work. That's that's kind of neat. In some cases, we're making it work. It is. It's a really remarkable place and I think for many of the faculty and particularly for students, I think they saw a lot of parallels to their own home communities. Even though we were in the far north, in Alaska, uh, many of the lessons, many of the stories that came out of the center hold relevance for places across Canada and internationally.
I certainly see the relevance for some of the work that's being done here at Memorial University in Labrador, especially in Nanatia with communities that are struggling with some of the climate change induced um, changes in permafrost and the way that we construct housing. So I'm kind of thinking that I would like to connect those folks with these folks in Fairbanks. I think they would have a lot in common. Okay, let's close the show. You do the honors. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. My name is Ryan Gibson. And I'm Brian Fierst. This week's episode focused on Cold Climate Housing Research Center in Fairbanks, Alaska, and their work in cold climate. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University, the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. North Star is the song you can hear at the beginning and the end of the show. The song was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know if you like the show. If you listen to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they are interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, ruralrootspodcasts.com. I'm Brian Fierst. I'm Ryan Gibson. And you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch.